0: You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. So Colossians 1, verses 15 to 20. He is the image of the invisible God He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Clarice. And g'day, everybody. If you haven't met me before, my name is Luke and I'm one of the pastors here and I love Christmas. Our neighbourhood has actually gone really hard for Christmas this year. Uh, We went early. Our kids wanted the Christmas tree up super early. So it was like November the 20th or something crazy when it went up. And then Ivana got all of these beautiful big long ribbons from Spotlight and she kind of tied them around all the trees on our street. And it just looked amazing. And and so we felt like we'd done our bit to bring the Christmas cheer to our street. Festive but understated, classy, a little bit like me. Um, (laughs) But then, sorry. But then, everyone else just kind of took it to a whole other level. There's a there's a house a couple of doors down. They've got kids, and they just went nuts. They just had lights everywhere, and it, the the street is kind of throbbing with this light. And I don't know if it's because everyone can't sleep anymore, but everyone else has kind of got in on it as well. And so everyone is just decking the halls with bows of holly and all kinds of things. There's lights in the trees. You basically can't touch a tree without risking electrocution. There's LED reindeers. There's everything. And so we started to feel a little bit average. And so actually last Monday, Ivana did like an emergency shop at Bunnings trying to find the last lights that were still available. And so now we've kind of lifted our game because our streets that uh, our house is right at the end of the street. So you kind of go down this great spectacle of light and wonder and get to our house. And so we needed to lift our game. So Ivana's done a wonderful job there. And, and I've been even thinking about going to those Sanders Magic Kingdom places or something like that. But uh, I think we're okay now. I think we're okay. Um, but I just love Christmas. I, I love the lights. I love the presents. I love the parties. I love the food. Actually, one year, I got food poisoning. And like two days before Christmas, and I was still sick on Christmas Day, so I was so upset that I missed the best meal of the year. Uh, but I just love all of this time. I love the vibe, I love the songs, and I love the story, That the person who's right at the heart of this whole thing, Jesus Christ. See, there's another way in which we went early this Christmas. Uh, if you've been coming along for the last month, we've spent these last few weeks going through this little passage that was read out tonight, Colossians 1, verse 15 to 20, which is all about Jesus and why he came and what he accomplished when he came. We've seen how Jesus is God himself, that he is the creator who made each one of us and the one who sustains all things, the one who holds all things together. This world is fragile, but it's safe in God's hand. This is what we're seeing. And today, this passage kind of reaches a crescendo and a a kind of summary of the whole thing. Verse 19, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. At first glance, this might not look like a Christmas passage. There's no mangers, there's no angels or shepherds. But what we have here is an explanation of what Jesus is all about. Tonight I want to show us who he is, what he came to do, and how he did that. First of all, I want you to see who Jesus is in this passage. We're told, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Paul is saying here, Paul's the guy who wrote this, he's saying that the man we call Jesus is also God, that Jesus was God in the flesh. As we've seen uh, a few weeks ago, it shows the complexity of who God is. We say that there's one God, but the God exists as three persons. We call it the Trinity. The, we, that's the word used to describe the threeness of God, how he can be one and yet three at the same time. Here we see that Jesus is part of this. Jesus is God himself, and yet he's also fully man. You see, as Christians, we believe that Jesus is two things at the same time. He is God and man. That's what happens with the incarnation. Incarnation is a fancy word from the from the Latin, which means to, to become flesh. And that's what what's we're talking about here. Here we have Jesus who was before all things, stepping into the world that he created, adding a human nature to his divine nature. So Jesus is one person with two distinct natures, a divine nature and a human nature. Not not 50-50, not half God, not half man. No, truly God and truly man. Fully God and fully man all at the same time. Jesus is the man from heaven, God in the flesh. Or as Paul says here, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. Now it might sound a little bit weird. It's certainly nerdy, but this is actually one of my favourite pieces of theology: the idea of the incarnation—that God would take on human flesh. It's one of my favourite things. But for lots of people, it's actually kind of almost uh, abhorrent. It doesn't make sense to lots of people. Uh, so, for instance, the, the Greek philosophers—they always had this idea that they they kind of split all things into the physical and the spiritual, and they imagined that the spiritual was always superior to the physical that matter was less important and, and kind of was, was something that was holding you back. In fact, here's a, here's a quote from a Greek philosopher. Uh, first, so their idea was that you had to escape the physical and kind of graduate to the spiritual. So here we go. First, you must tear off this garment which you wear, this cloak of darkness, this, our bodies, this web of ignorance, this prop of evil, this bond of corruption, this living death, this conscious corpse, this tomb that you carry about with you. That's how they viewed the body. They wanted to escape that, to get rid of that, to graduate to the spiritual. So if you have this kind of idea, then, then God the ultimate spiritual being taking on flesh makes no sense. Like if the whole goal of life is to get out of the physical, why would God, the ultimate spiritual, descend into the physical? So for lots of people, this is kind of unattractive or or bizarre. They don't want this. And and actually in the early church, there were were some people who kind of felt how weird this was and, and tried to kind of get their way around it. So they said that Jesus Christ was this was actually two different beings. It was Jesus, this bloke, who's just sort of walking along, and then one day Christ, the divine being, kind of jumped into his life, kind of possessing him. And so he, Jesus was kind of like a, a shell that God was kind of working through because they, they wanted to suggest that there was this greater nature, this spiritual nature that was greater than his physical. But that's not what Paul says here. He says, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Or in Colossians 2, in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. God wants this. He wants to inhabit the physical. And far from it being his disgrace, I actually think it shows his glory. You see, God took on flesh to show us himself. That's what we saw a few weeks ago, isn't it? Verse 15, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. God is the spirit, he's not visible to us, but through Jesus, by him taking on flesh, he shows us God himself. As it says in John 1, no one has ever seen God, the only God, Jesus, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Jesus came to show us what God is like. So when you look at Jesus, you can see God. And what a God we see in Jesus. A God of incredible empathy, who understands the struggles of humanity. A God of compassion, who always gravitated to the people who are on the fringes. The lepers, the untouchables, the sinners, the ones that everyone else judged and ignored. We see in Jesus that God is a God of humility. That the God of all power, loved to serve. In fact, he he even stooped down to wash the feet of his disciples, which is the the lowest act of the lowest servant. That's what our God chose to do through Jesus. And we see that God is a God of love who gave himself for us. And so far from disgracing himself, I think the incarnation honours God because we see in Jesus just how wonderful God is. The writer Shirley Guthrie says, Jesus is not like a king who preserves his majesty and honour just by shutting himself off in the splendour of his palace. No, his majesty is the majesty of a love so great that he leaves the palace to live among his subjects as one of them. If we want to find this king, we will find him among the weak and lowly. His genuine majesty, both revealed and hidden in his choosing to share our vulnerability and our suffering. Actually, in Jesus, we see the glory of God. So this Christmas, ponder afresh the wonder of the incarnation. I love it, how the Apostle John, in 1 John 1, he starts a letter. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands. He's speaking about Jesus here. We heard about this God we saw all of these things, and the life was made manifest. We've seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. You see the wonder in his words. He'd read about this God, he'd prayed up to this God, and then this God stepped into his world. And he's full of wonder that he could see God, touch God, be around God. This is the wonder of the incarnation. As we sing in that hymn, Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, late in time behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased with us in flesh to dwell Jesus, our Emmanuel, our God with us. Look for him this Christmas see who Jesus is and then secondly understand what he came to do there's always something so lovely about the Christmas carols so many of them are around peace and there's these beautiful images silent night holy night all is calm all is bright and and all of the advertising around Christmas is these beautiful family scenes it's homely there's glowing warm lights there's people happy it's a time of peace and we call we talk about peace all the time don't we peace on earth goodwill to all men uh, we famously we know how powerful christmas can be in terms of creating peace you've probably heard of the christmas truce uh, during world war 1 1914 uh, the german and british soldiers started uh, in, on the trenches of the, the western front they start hearing the other side singing christmas carols and so they they lift their heads above the trenches and just a, you know, a few hours before, they would have had their heads shot off and now they, they get out of the trenches and they go and visit each other. They give each other presents and wish each other Merry Christmas, show photos of their sweethearts back home, and they, they come together in this beautiful moment of peace. That's what Christmas is all about. It's about peace. And yet, of course, there's something so horribly ironic about that too, isn't it? Because they have just this little moment of peace in the middle of a war. A moment ago they were shooting each other, and a couple of days later they'll be shooting each other again. And so Christmas comes in the middle of conflict. And really that's what the experience of Jesus was as well. He came into this world into the middle of conflict. There's this little baby in a manger laying down his sweet head, but he's in the middle of a war zone. Because ultimately this is a war, a world at war. Wikipedia records that there are something more than 10,000 wars in human history. Indeed, a couple of historians once calculated that in the past 3,500 years, there's been less than 300 years where there's no conflict. Humans fight. We are constantly in, engaged in battle. Uh, the 20th century was the bloodiest century in human history. 187 million people killed in battle or associated with it. We've seen wars already in the 21st century, and perhaps this year in particular, we've, we've sensed it in a in a more graphic and visceral way with the invasion of the Ukraine, the largest conventional military attack since World War II. And there's this growing unease about the West's relationship with China the possibility of nuclear war. In fact, there's even been advertisements in New York advising what you do if there's a nuclear attack. It's like we're back in the Cold War in the 1960s. like we sense the possibility of war in a way that we haven't in decades. We are a world at war. But it's not just on the global stage of of nations. It's in our own worlds as well. It's in the worlds of our, our families as we Uh, perhaps unravel the collected tension of two years of lockdown. You think about uh, among our friends, easily broken or fractured friendships and arguments, even in the office, office politics, jostling for position. There's, There's war in our worlds and there's war against the world even. There's this conflict that we sense at times with nature itself, and then as Christians, we recognize that there is a, a war behind this world, that there is a spiritual conflict going on. This, this is a world at war. And ultimately, the Bible says that this is because humanity is at war with its creator, with God himself. So in the Scriptures, we're told that we were made to live in peace and harmony, we were made to live for God and with God, but then we defied God and went to war against him. In fact, Paul will say in verse 21, we are alienated and hostile towards our Creator. And this war has affected everything else. They used to say that World War II was a a total war because for the first time, perhaps, the war wasn't just confined to the battlefield, it spread everywhere, to the streets. Collateral damage of humanity and people living in towns and so on being bombed. And in the same way, just as we have turned against God, now there is this total war that affects everything, that affects creation itself. Romans 8 says that creation is groaning. It's troubled by the sin that is around it. It's in bondage to corruption, we're told. We are at war with God, so this is a world at war. But here we're told that Jesus came to fix this that Jesus came to reconcile to himself all things, verse 20, whether on earth or in heaven. I want you to see God's heart here. See, God made this world and he's grieved that it now lies unsettled. He wants to bring resolution. He made everything with a purpose and a design and a beautiful design. And he wants it to be restored to its purpose. And this extends to all realms of his creation. Human and animal, plant and planet. Jesus, we're told in verse 16, made all things. All things were created through him and for him. And so he will restore all things. This is his heart to reconcile all things to himself, to bring peace, to bring joy to this world. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. That's what Jesus came to do. But now thirdly, I want you to see how he does it, because it's extraordinary. We're told here he will reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. It always seems strange to talk about death at Christmas time because you want to focus on birth and life and hope and family and all of these happy things but it's unavoidable with Jesus because this is ultimately why he came to earth he lived so he could die. Whereas Lee said in his prayer he was born so that he could die because that's the only way reconciliation could happen. Whenever there is a war, whenever there is a great conflict, the only way that you can have peace is if someone steps into the gap. It might be that the the wrongdoer says sorry, makes reparations for what they've done. It might be that the other party accepts that, forgives. But here in this situation, we've got a problem because we can't make up for what we've done. Sin is so serious that we can't get beyond it. We can't make up for all of our mistakes. We can't do what is acceptable. And so we're told in Hebrews 9 that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Sin is that serious that it requires the greatest cost the cost of life itself. Now, we don't kind of think like this. We often try to diminish sin. You know, it's just a white lie, or it's not as bad as what they did. We excuse it. I mean, if you'd only understood the situation, or well, we just ignore it. which is not important to us. But here we see how significant sin is. The only way it can be dealt with, the only way it can be made up for, is death itself. That's what sin brings. That's what justice demands. But the glorious message of the gospel is that Jesus takes that punishment for us, that Jesus gives his life for us, that he sh- makes peace by the blood of his cross. Or as Paul says in verse 22, he's reconciled, we are, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, so that we can be presented holy and blameless before God. He takes our sin and pays for it so that we can be accepted as perfect before God. God does all the work of reconciliation. He makes up for what we've done that's wrong, and then he forgives. This is God's heart for us, his love for us. That we, even though we have dishonoured him, we've constantly ignored and defied his grace from the very beginning. Still he comes to make peace. I was struck this week just by how vivid this concept is of him shedding his blood. Uh, Last night we had this great Christmas social. It's a wonderful night. Right at the end, though, one of our sons, Jude, was playing in the passageway and he tripped and smashed his head on this brick pillar and he came raining, running in crying and just, look, all this blood. And there was blood all over his hand and we, blood all through his head and we kind of had these bandages and we are kind of trying to padding down. It was so fortunate we had like three doctors and a, an ED nurse who happened to be there. So it was incredibly, it was, if you wanted to have an accident, this was the perfect time as so though he was looked after. But I was just kind of thinking about how visceral it is. When you see that blood, that's how he was like, this is, this is him, part of himself coming out, right? You feel the reality. So feel the reality of what Jesus did. He deliberately shed his blood for us. He cares so much about reconciling with us. That he shed his blood. He gave himself for us. He did everything to make peace. Because this is not normally how it works, is it? The powerful, they don't give themselves, do they? French, the French king Louis XIV had these cannons and there was a Latin Inscription on them, ultimate ratio regum, the final argument of kings. He's basically saying, look, if I can't win you over with my logic, here's my final argument. I'll just blow you up. I will get my way. And that's how we work, isn't it, in conflict. We have to get our own way. We spill someone else's blood, never our own. It's the same in any human conflict, even in sport. The Australian cricket team used to talk about mental disintegration, the total annihilation of the opposition. It was fitting that the the captain at that time was a guy called Steve Waugh. Like even our games become a place of war. We want to destroy the other person. We want to win. In fact, even when we win, that's not enough. We we have to keep making sure that the, the message of our victory is always there. They say that history is written by the winners So the message is always that we were a great person. The winner is always noble and inspirational and any of their faults are are hidden. In fact, it's always about self-protection. One British Prime Minister, Harold Macmillan, was so desperate to hold on to his power that he sacked all of his closest friends, prompting one rival to comment, Greater love hath no man than this, that he lay down his friends for his own life. That he sacrificed to someone else to protect himself. And of course, the irony in that was that Jesus did the opposite. Greater love has no man than this, that he laid down his own life for his friends. Because that's what Jesus did. He shed his blood for us. All because he wanted to be reconciled to you and me. This is our God. See our God this Christmas. The one who created us. The one whose heart was broken by our sin. But the one whose heart so extends in love to us that he came to reconcile with us. And so what is our response? Well, in another of Paul's letters to Corinthians, he says in chapter 5, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. You see, this, uh, God has done everything that can be done for reconciliation. It's this great offer that he throws out to the cosmos and to us. Will we accept it? Will we be reconciled? Will we repent? Will we turn back to him, say sorry for what we've done and put our trust in him? Accepting what Jesus has done for us, trusting him. And then Paul goes on, if we do that, we become ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. So if you've already said yes to him, then Jesus invites you to be one of his ambassadors, to proclaim his message of reconciliation at this Christmas time. i started by talking about street lights and Christmas lights. (laughs) If you could say this, it's almost like God wants the house of the Christian to have the best lights. We should be the people who are the most excited about Christmas, the ones who are parading God's glory at Christmas. I was reading just during the week why we actually have Christmas lights That's because it's to point to the fact that Jesus is the light of the world. Those lights point to the greatness of our Jesus. The one who is our creator, who made you and me. The one who is God himself. The one who stepped into this world to make reconciliation possible. If you're here today and you've, maybe you've never, uh, talked about Jesus, thought about Jesus. This Christmas, be reconciled to your Creator. Or maybe you came along tonight and you've had some church background, but you haven't for a while. Jesus says, come home again. Come back. Be reconciled. And if you're here and you've been a faithful Christianer over this year, other years, feel afresh the wonder and the glory of Christmas, and become an ambassador for him. How about we pray? Father God, we thank you so much for the glory and wonder of Christmas. We acknowledge you as our God and as our creator. We thank you that even though we sinned, even though we turned against you, you sent Jesus into this world to bring life, to bring us home. Jesus thank you that you shed your blood for us. May we feel that. May we feel the reality of that. Both the the, the need for it and the wonderful grace that you showed in doing it. May we feel it afresh. May we be messengers of your reconciliation. For Jesus glory. Amen.